These are undesirables. They drink and they steal from what we want to see flourish. I'm talking about invasive grasses. What makes them invasive annuals? Um, they obviously don't come from here. All of them originated in Eurasia and have been transported here over time. And they're invasive because they spread very quickly and outcompete the native vegetation. JC Arndt, invasive grasses extension educator for the University of Wyoming is my guest today as we discuss management of these undesirables as well as what it's going to take to slow down and or eradicate these grasses from continuing their spread across the country. Plus there's an invasive grasses summit and we're going to talk about that as well and how you can participate in that event on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. And we welcome you back here again. This is the Working Ranch Radio Show, and I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here on our program today, as uh, we appreciate you taking the time to do this. If you're listening on the radio, thanks for doing that. If you're listening and have downloaded this on the podcast site, uh, appreciate that as well. For those of you that are listening via podcast and for those listening on the radio, something to be aware of. I do have some active links in our description here today that is going to reference some information that might be useful uh, later on, we're going to be talking about an, an invasive grasses summit, but our main topic here today is really uh, getting some definition on that. What that means, it is something that is landowners, which many of us are here in the ranching industry, or we're caretakers of somebody else's land. This is something that we need to be aware of in terms of how some, some management elements that are out there, as well as what our role is as landowners, as managers of, of uh, our resources out there to, to get a handle on this these are uh, invasive grasses are uh, it's a serious thing because if we want a healthy ecosystem then we need to have some management in that and there has to be some collaboration with various entities to get that done we're going to talk about that today as jc Arndt, who is the invasive grasses extension educator for the university of wyoming will be joining us now she's based out of sheridan wyoming and later on we're going to be talking about an invasive grasses summit that's taking place in Sheridan, Wyoming, and I'll give you all the details about that as well. But uh, we're going to be talking about this today, and I think some uh, some good, useful information, especially for all of us here in the ranching industry, in regards to the fact that we do have a lot of responsibility when it comes to managing uh, these uh, the lands that we're on. Also, of course, joining us as he does each and every week, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be in in just a few moments for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. And in the very tail end of our program today, meteorologist Don Day will be joining us, is going to give us an update on La Nina, and uh, that kind of sheds some light on maybe where weather's going to be at as we head into fall and winter as well. So some uh, some good information there with meteorologist Don Day. A thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch radio show Gelvy Balancer the smart reliable and profitable choice for more information head to their website at gelvy.org Zoetis it's the little things that could derail progress but you know your herd can be covered visit getlessparasites.com for solutions from Zoetis and the American Akaushi Association experience the difference at akaushi.com and finally Biozyme you know it is getting close to weaning time for some of you maybe you've already 
started. So for protection and recovery, well, think Vita Charge by Biozyme. For more information, go to vitafirm.com forward slash Vita dash charge. Well, right now, as we always do, let's check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne. He is the publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. This Justin from the NCBA. Court grants agriculture coalition intervention in gray wolf lawsuit. Yesterday, the NCBA and the Public Lands Council and other agriculture coalition members commended a decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that will allow the coalition to intervene in the case Defenders of Wildlife versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and defend the previous administration's delisting of the gray wolf. Now, this is a quote from Caitlin Glover, executive director of PLC and NCBA Natural Resources. And I think you had her on the show here a couple episodes back, didn't you, Justin? Here's what she has to say. Livestock producers are directly impacted by the species management decisions made by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, especially when it comes to species with significant federal footprints. And that would be the great wolf. (laughs) That's a big, big wolf that they brought in from Canada. The decision to allow the coalition to intervene in all case demonstrates, in this case, demonstrates what we have known all along. Livestock producers deserve to have their voice heard on delisting the gray wolf. That is Caitlin Glover, executive director of the PLC and the NCBA Natural Resources. We look forward to engaging in this case to defend the delisting of a species that has so clearly recovered. Now, Justin, have you have you ever seen a wolf? Because I have seen wolves on cattle, and um, it's quite something to see. But they uh, this was up in British Columbia when I was up at Gang Ranch, and I mean it was they were in their natural habitat. Um, we 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 recognized that, but bringing reintroducing the the gray wolf, which is huge down into country that didn't have it here in the United States. That's a game changer. It's a little bit different deal. Folks, if you want to comment on this, get back to Justin. What's your contact info, Justin? You bet, Captain. And folks, yeah, here is my information. If you'd like to get a hold of me, let me know what you're thinking on this. Uh, as the captain was saying, he asked me, have you ever seen a wolf? And I can say, yes, I did as a kid. In fact, uh, it was uh, out in the middle of a pasture and it was putting the sneak on a herd of sheep. That's when I saw it. And so I have seen one, haven't seen a lot since then. And uh, But it, nevertheless, it is something that uh, is a serious issue. Get a hold of me, though. Let me know. My phone number, 3073. 363-COWS. That's 307-363-COWS. My email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to head into our featured interview. We're going to be talking invasive grasses today when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Control comes when you focus on the little things, from daily chores to parasite management, because any little thing could derail progress. But your herd can be covered. Visit GetLessParasites.com for solutions from Zoetis. It's weaning time, one of the biggest days of the year for you and the most stressful for your calves. Ensure a smooth transition with the VitaCharge Weaning Program. This two-step program with the AmmaFirm Advantage gives calves the nutritional boost they need to get through the first weeks of weaning, accelerate appetite, increase weight gain, and improve health. 
It's weaning time. Get them ready with VitaCharge. For more information, visit VitaFirm.com forward slash Vita dash charge. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. As we head now into our featured interview today, as we always do here on the Working Ranch Radio Show, uh, try to provide topics that we think would be beneficial to folks here in the ranching industry. And uh, today, no different than that, as we talk about invasive grasses. And we're going to be talking about later on in the show about a summit and, a, and an event going on where you can take uh, be a part of if you're close enough to drive to Sheridan, Wyoming, which is where it's going to be located, then you can do that. If not, you can also catch it through Zoom as the University of Wyoming is putting this on. We'll talk more about it towards the end, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, though, I am joined by JC Arndt. She is the Invasive Grasses Educator, Extension Educator for the University of Wyoming out of Sheridan, Wyoming. And first of all, uh, JC, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we talk about later on, as we're going to talk about this summit that's going on, I, I do want to talk about invasive grasses. I know this is something that, uh, as you are the educator, extension educator for the University of Wyoming on this, let's give it some definition so people understand what we're talking about. Right. So invasive annual grasses is the main proponent that we're looking at. Um, I'm sure a lot of you know them by their names, uh, cheatgrass being a major one. So there's also a few other invasive annual grasses, uh, some of them actually relatively new. So we've got um, Medusa head and Ventnata. There's also Japanese brome and ribgut brome. So we've got a couple of different species and uh, what makes them invasive annuals, um, they obviously don't come from here. All of them originated in Eurasia and have been transported here over time. And they're invasive because they spread very quickly and outcompete the native vegetation. And the tricky part about these is they are annuals. So they're basically uh, surviving strictly off of seed production and they produce an insane amount of seed every year and can spread very quickly from that. Um, all of these annual grasses are also winter annuals. So they emerge late in the fall, kind of take up that late fall moisture and then they overwinter underneath the snowbank. And then really early in the spring, they start growing again and they have the ability to take up all of that spring moisture before any of the other vegetation really gets going. So it makes it really complicated to control these invasive animal grasses. Mm -hmm. What do you think has has perpetuated this invasive grasses to, to move in? I mean, it's not that we maybe have not had elements of this in our ecosystems in the past, but we're definitely seeing in certain areas it being a lot more prevalent a lot a lot more to it what from your standpoint what do you feel has propagated this right um invasion brings on more invasion right so we've seen cheatgrass for years in wyoming but we're seeing it pop up more and more and into like healthier landscapes and the trick with uh these annual grasses is they really do change the ecosystem so they may enter an ecosystem and it can alter the soil health, which can help lead to even more annual grasses growing in that area. They can start to um, basically outcompete the perennial vegetation that's there or the healthy vegetation and basically just open up more space for those annuals so that they spread further and further and they get more and more cover in those areas. And then there's also the big problem of your fire regime. So these annual grasses are really fine fuel that can burn up really quickly and um, fire actually helps them spread even more. So they're pretty 
how resilient to fire. So not only do they cause fire to occur more often on the ecosystems, but then that fire actually helps them spread and grow and fill in those empty spaces. So you just see an increase. Every year that we have a fire, we see more annual grasses spread. Um, when there's droughts, these annual grasses do really well in drought conditions. So while your perennial grasses are kind of getting held back, those annuals are spreading even further. So it just kind of keeps growing and growing. And we've seen cheatgrass for years and like Japanese brome, but then there's a few new species that are coming and they're relatively new to the state because they were initially just on the West Coast, kind of in Washington, California, Oregon. And now they're spreading further West. And we've actually done a couple models to determine what the best environmental environmental conditions are for these mm -hmm. species. And the climate of Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota is actually probably better for these species than where they're at on the West Coast. So mm -hmm. they're just going to continue to be more of a problem. And we just have to try to manage our perennial grasses to stay strong enough to compete with them, keeping the thought about them out when you have drought years, preventing fire. You know, there's all sorts of things. They really take advantage of everything in order to spread across the West. Yeah. Well, and I know even on our own uh, ranch here in northeastern Wyoming, uh, both of us here, of course, today being from Wyoming, but um, I know one of the areas that we have a really hard time of dealing with cheatgrass and I've tried to manage it from a grazing standpoint is an area that did have a prairie fire go through and while I don't see the sagebrush which we have to fight a lot of times in that particular pasture that the fire wiped out I have not been able to get a really good handle on it through uh, through you know just rest and, and trying not to overgraze it uh, it was a calving pasture for a lot of years and pay, basically pulling out of it uh, uh, and not trying to do that and it still is extremely hard from the cheatgrass I'm talking about is extremely hard to manage it is yeah absolutely I mean there's a lot of people that have tried <clears throat> we've seen success in grazing with cheatgrass especially really early in the spring if you can kind of knock back that cheatgrass before your perennials start growing actually um, I grew up on a ranch in Northeast Wyoming too, between Buffalo and Gillette. And we've actually seen some success in really early spring grazing because we graze that cheatgrass down and then we actually pull the cows out and they go onto the mountain. So it has all summer for those perennials to grow. And we've actually seen a little bit better control of cheatgrass in that manner, but it's just difficult to graze your cheatgrass without overgrazing your perennial grasses, your desirable grasses and managing that in between and if there's any sort of disturbance those annual grasses just love that and they mm -hmm. can really take advantage of any change up in nutrients or change up in space um, or very limited amounts of water so mm -hmm. they really just take advantage of everything well, I know one of the things, as I said before, we're going to be talking about this Invasive Grasses Summit that's coming up uh, September 6th is when that's going to be. But uh, in that discussion, there's going to be some, of course, about management. And, and today, let's talk about that just a little bit as we were just, a, a, you know, a bit about grazing on that. And I know that we have folks listening that are, are, are good grazers and kind of ha under a mentality that there's no such thing as a bad as 
as weeds are a guess because in our minds we're thinking weed is anything we don't want to see out there and they feel that from a grazing standpoint and and kind of a holistic management approach that they can control that and i think there's some elements to that um from a, from a management standpoint you talked about it briefly and let's get into from a from a grazing standpoint maybe just a little bit further about that about some of the you know the times of the year you talked about that again uh, when we should be grazing that and how we can manage that from a grazing standpoint yeah, absolutely. So with species like cheatgrass and Japanese brome, they do provide some forage really early in the spring or sometimes even really late in the fall. Honestly, um, here in Sheridan, we've seen some of the best vegetation for our wildlife in the fall are annual grasses because it's the only thing that's coming up with that late fall moisture. And they do actually, I mean, if you can utilize a grass for forage, then that's a win basically. So even if you're not managing it, or controlling it as much, as long as you're getting use out of it, you can count that as somewhat of a win. So with cheatgrass and uh, Japanese broom, we've seen with that really early spring grazing or really late fall when the plants are just coming up and they don't have those rough seed heads coming out yet. So those can both be beneficial. The tricky part is there's relatively new annual grasses to Wyoming, and I kind of talked about that already, Medusa head and Ventnata. Right now, Medusa head is only found in Sheridan County, thankfully, and we've worked really hard to uh, control it with herbicide applications. So we're hoping that in the next couple of years, we'll actually have it eradicated. But Nada, on the other hand, um, was pretty widespread through Sheridan County when we found it in 2016. It was mostly just nobody knew to look for it. And that's kind of what's changed in the northeast part of the state. So now everybody's kind of keeping an eye out for it. And since 2016, we found it in Campbell County. Uh, Johnson County. And unfortunately, just this summer, we found a population in Crook County. So it's kind of spreading throughout the state. It's also through kind of the southeastern part of Montana. And uh, just about a month ago, we found a population or a partner in South Dakota found a population in Harding County. So that's the first South Dakota population. So it's kind of spreading. Now, the really unfortunate part about both of these species is they're basically unpalatable throughout the season. So even really early in the springtime, uh, they have a really high silica content and they're basically completely unpalatable to livestock. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, I mean, I've been in the fields where cows have eaten cheatgrass early in the season, but these same fields get taken over by Ventnata and you can actually see where the cows have picked up the grass and then just spit it back out. Um, there's basically no forage quality in it even early in the season. So. Mm -hmm. These ones are even harder to control because really we can't even get the cows to eat it. Yeah. I mean, outside of like concentrating them in an area and trying to force them to eat it, but then you're not really getting any sort of forage quality out of it. They're so fine and such a high silica content, that there's not really any, there's no total digestible nutrients, protein content. It's not really worth it. So those two are honestly even scarier yeah. than cheap grass yeah. and something to really pay attention to. Well, and I think that'd be the concern from a grazing standpoint is why, and I, and I've actually, I don't like to see cheatgrass out there, but, um, you can it'll work you know it'll it'll work if you really have to you don't definitely want to see it and i think the concern would be these these invasive grasses that are coming in that are unpalatable my guest today is jc Arndt. she is the invasive grasses extension educator for the university of wyoming and we're going to continue on with her in our next couple of segments here we're, we're ending up uh, when it's all said and done talking about an invasive grasses summit that's coming up on september 6th we're going to talk more about it uh, where and how you can be a part of that if 
if you want to uh, later on in the show. But when we come back, we're going to continue more as we talk about invasive grasses when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. For commercial cow-calf producers, crossbreeding with Galvay and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galvay and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Gelvie and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelvate.org. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Today I'm joined, my guest is J.C. Arndt. She is the Invasive Grasses Extension Educator for the University of Wyoming. And, and uh, in the ne- next segment, we'll be telling you about this Invasive Grasses Summit that's going to be taking place in Sheridan, Wyoming on Tuesday, September 6th. But uh, today, kind of a preview of, of some of that discussion. We're not going to be able to replicate some of the panel discussions that will be taking place that are very very uh, useful when you go to these kind of events, but uh, JC is very knowledgeable in in invasive grasses in that whole element. And of course, uh, we, we've talked. She she named some of those different species or grasses that we see moving across the country. And uh, uh, JC, I want to talk now. Uh, Wyoming being kind of a diverse state, and the fact that you do have some very dry, arid country in the south, and then as you further move north. You do get into areas that maybe are foothills areas to uh, grasslands type type situations. So Wyoming serves very well to do a study on various different invasive grasses. Let's talk about some of the stuff that's been done and what you found in those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of the just the baseline of management of these grasses, um, preventing them from ever getting there is a really good thing. So. I kind of talked about a little bit like the open spaces. So if we look at different ecosystems across the U.S. um, or across the state of Wyoming, those really dry, arid areas can be pretty uh, difficult to control these grasses because there's a lot of empty space for them to enter into. And then when we get into some of the higher precipitation zones, those grasses can still enter. But if we can maintain pretty healthy vegetation, we usually have a better chance. There's been studies that have reflected that as well. We've also seen with some of the herbicide treatments that we've done in the West, um, there's a really good uh, potential for uh, grasses basically recovering from kind of heavier management strategies uh, when there is higher precipitation available. So kind of in Northeast Wyoming, we've seen really good results from high intensity grazing or herbicide treatments because the grasses that are here have the potential to kind of come back. As far as some of the other research that we've seen, uh, there was a pretty big project that came out of uh, Sharon, Wyoming from a graduate student a couple of years ago that did work uh, trying to figure out kind of at which point it's most important to treat annual grasses so that you have that recovery potential on perennial grasses. So um, with that, we kind of got an idea of like what level of invasion do you have to start thinking about treating things? Um, so I kind of talked about too, like, when cheatgrass is really widespread, sometimes just getting use out of it is a management strategy. And that's when it's widespread and it's so expensive to control that sometimes just using it is your best option. But if we kind of move down on that level of invasion, uh, there's different alternatives when it's 
in a pretty contained area, something like Medusa Head in Sharon County. Um, we're working more from the perspective of eradication where we're putting actually pretty expensive herbicides out on the Medusa Head, but that's because it's in a small area and we're just trying to get rid of it instead of manage that. So there's different kind of levels of control um, depending on which species you're working with and which area you're in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, when you say level of control, it has to get back to what you and I were talking about in the first segment. And that is the palatability of that of that invasive grass, too, because, as you said, there's there's like the Medusa head and and some of these others that are coming in. It's kind of like cocklebur, you know, in your in your ditches. I mean, nothing's really going to eat that. And so you have to find good ways to get rid of that. And so you're kind of limited on some of those ways in which you can which you can do that. From a from a standpoint of control, it really does take the landowners to to be a part of this process. I, I know uh, when we talk about weeds, invasive weeds, such as uh, that we see across the West, you know, you see folks, and we're seeing it now that a lot of folks coming in, buying up small parcels of ground, not getting in and not um, taking care of that from a, from a weed standpoint. And so we just see that continuing on. Grass is much similar to that. So from your standpoint what you guys see i'm guessing is really landowners need to be a part of this process yeah absolutely that collaborative part is kind of the main way to have success in controlling annual grasses so actually our main goal kind of is to have collaborative efforts so that we can have landscape control that's kind of the goal of the summit actually is to have these stakeholders that have been managing annual grasses across very large landscapes to come together and kind of talk about what their successes and failures are with that. I mean, it's kind of difficult in Wyoming. You're working with different landowners from different um, sizes of ranches or you've got new people coming in that aren't really familiar with managing rangelands in the West or maybe don't have really anything familiar outside of they bought a piece of property so they could come hunt in the winter, right? That happens. So kind of grounding between those. And then we also have a mix of land ownership. So some of it's private, we have forest service and state lands. Um, BLM, actually one of the best herbicides for treating annual grasses isn't labeled for use on BLM yet because they have to do their own private survey to make sure that they are okay with using it. So that, I mean, that comes from a national level. So something that we found to be the most successful at controlling annual grasses, we can't use on BLM. So we can treat all around it but that BLM still has the annual grasses and it could spread out from there. I mean, I think about it too, just from neighbors. I've seen neighbors pay to get their neighbor's land treated just so that they don't have that coming back into their property. Sometimes it's worth it to that perspective. Um, We're really lucky actually. It's kind of a success story actually that we share kind of all across the U.S. Uh, Here in Sharon County, when we found that not in Medusa Head, we had a very impressive collaborative effort from multiple groups in Sheridan and kind of across the state. I mean, from Forest Service, BLM, NRCS, the University, Sharon College, Conservation Districts, Sharon County Community, Federal Land Trust. I mean, basically any group that had to do with the environment or conservation in Sharon County, the wing pest, everybody grouped together and kind of like put funds together, knowledge, information, any sort of help that they could And because of that, we were actually a lot more successful at treating large landscape level pieces of land for these annual grasses. And it's a lot better concerted effort. And by doing so, we were a lot more successful at controlling these grasses. I mean, we've presented um, in multiple other states that have a difficult, I mean, they have difficulties just getting everybody to work together, which is understandable. They're coming from 
I mean, different parts of the federal government. She's got private landowners that don't want to be controlled by something that uh, the Forest Service tells them to do. But if we all work together, there's a lot better chance of us actually getting something controlled. Yeah. As you were talking about that, the thought that came to my mind was here in the summertime, most of us in the West or anybody in the country, when, when your fuels start to dry out, it becomes fire season. And what I find interesting is that anytime the fire whistle blows or the radio goes off and we got a, a fire, it's unreal how many people move quickly to to fight that fire. I see this element with invasive grasses. We could maybe throw weeds into the same into the same category at this point in conversation. That that collaborative effort needs to happen uh, when it comes to these kind of deals with these invasive grasses. These things that are are, are moving in that are not not a good species, not a good uh, grass to be growing out there. Um, but it's it's sometimes that there's not that collaborative effort because life can go on and we really don't see i mean initially anything different a fire goes through somebody's place you see it instantly right but with this and and so that collaboration really i think is going to be key to really getting a good control on this yeah absolutely and honestly if you think about why that fire goes through so quickly it's because the annual grasses are there (laughs) and they're helping spread it so if you just look at the root cause of that fire and we work on that as a team, there's a lot better chance of, I mean, preventing that from ever happening. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, large landowners, um, probably good and bad, they, they understand this now because they are large landowners. Maybe they don't, uh, the management's a little tougher for them in some ways. Uh, but we also have folks in light of the last couple, three years with just COVID and, and a lot of folks moving out of higher concentrated areas and finding their their smaller parcels, their 40-acre homesteads or 160-acre homesteads and, and trying to make a go of it out there. Now they're having to understand this is, this is a part of what it means to own land out here is to be responsible in managing this stuff right and that's kind of i don't know the one nice thing about annual grasses is they're very noticeable so when somebody comes out and buys property out here because it's beautiful it's the west and in the springtime it's this beautiful green color but when you get to the middle of june and everything is kind of a just brown or that you get that cheatgrass purple across your landscape and you have seeds stuck in your shoes um right that's People pay attention to that. We get a lot of calls about the middle of June because the cheatgrass has turned color or um, this year bulbous bluegrass was all over the place. I mean, I was getting stopped in Walmart to ask what this grass was. So when that changes, people notice it. And even when they're not from here, I mean, when your landscape doesn't look pretty, you start to notice things and you start to start asking questions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we come in. You bet. We're going to continue. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the future challenges that we see as we try to manage these invasive grasses. We're going to address that. Plus, we're going to get into specifics about this Invasive Grasses Summit that's coming up on Tuesday, September 6th, and how you can be a part of it, what's going to be presented at that particular summit, and uh, what you can expect to take away from that. So we're going to talk about it when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. At the American Akaushi Association, we're more than prime. The American Akaushi Association was created to help ranchers be more profitable and find opportunities when using Akaushi genetics in their herd. We focus on market opportunities for our members and offer support from conception to consumer. 
When you choose Akaushi, you have a network right there with you. Experience the difference at akaushi.com. That's A K A U S H I.com. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Our topic here today, we've been talking with J.C. Arndt. She's our guest today, Invasive Grasses Extension Educator for the University of Wyoming. And uh, we've, we've been talking about this whole element of invasive grasses and how it's, uh, it's movement across the West and, and in different areas across the country. Some of the plants that we've identified here today are widespread across the country. And as we talk about this, I know a lot of our dialogue today has been about uh, some of the stuff that they're seeing in northern Wyoming. However, uh, it can spread. And I think the, the concept we're trying to get down into this is the fact that as landowners, we do have a responsibility. And whether you choose to, to handle that from a grazing standpoint or whether you want to go with herbicides, uh, that is that is your decision. But there needs to be some responsibility by the landowner. Uh, JC, I want to get into now, and maybe we've, we've touched on it just a little bit ago, but as uh, as we look at this big issue that is uh, going to be on these invasive grasses, and, and again, I'm going to kind of, I did it before, I'm going to kind of lump in weeds here a little bit as well, because I think it's just stuff that's out there on our ranges, in our pastures, and it's all across the country. What do you feel is probably the biggest challenges to getting getting a good handle on this? Yeah, so I think the biggest challenges um, are... I think collaboration is still a challenge that we have to work on. Um, We've started an institute, it's called IMAGINE, the Institute for Managing Annual Grasses, Invading Natural Ecosystems. And basically the whole mission of that is to implement a strategy to help control invasive annual grasses at landscape scales and empowering landowners to make, um, and managers to make informed decisions on that. And that kind of stemmed from the need of collaboration. So basically, the University of Wyoming, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, there's a lot of different groups housed underneath Imagine um, to help with that collaborative work. And that kind of also stems into uh, the other challenges with controlling annual grasses. Um, management options, like I talked about grazing, doesn't always work. There are better herbicide options nowadays, but there's still issues with them. Um, sometimes just getting the applications done. They're expensive, so there's still issues with that. Uh, funding is a problem. So trying to treat with really expensive herbicides or something else, it can get really expensive and then you're not going to be able to break even. So even from like a federal agency perspective, finding funding to help producers or to get um, federal lands or state lands treated can be difficult. Those are all kind of the challenges that we're going to be talking about actually at the summit is um, what some of the Land managers across the state have been doing um, what's been successful, um, some of the challenges that they've overcome. We've actually got a group uh, coming from Sublet County and Teton County uh, that are going to talk a little bit about uh, the difficulties of getting not only landowner engagement, but getting having the understanding from the community to trust what you're actually trying to do. Yeah. Well, and I think from an agricultural standpoint, and and we've we know that, or we've talked about it here on our show, that we really need to be better about educating our community, and so that's that's going to kind of fall in line with that. I, I can't help but think as as I hear uh, we talk about some of these challenges, and I know there's going to be folks listening that are probably going to be pushing back a little bit on the concept of of the application of a lot of herbicides. Um, I think it goes back to our previous discussion that you and I had about some of this stuff is 
is unpalatable. And I think there's some management that needs to be done when stuff is getting started that uh, might be good. I, I I do go back to one of the, the best managements I feel is going to be grazing, but that means people need to learn how to how to do grazing too. And I think that that in itself, it's, it's pretty easy to just go, you know, grab the bottle, throw it in the sprayer and go do something. That's pretty easy. And you don't have to change any of your uh, management, uh, grazing management. So that I think is going to be a huge challenge. Yeah, the grazing is definitely a problem. I mean, there's people that have ranched for hundreds of years that still don't really know what the proper use is. I mean, grasslands are different all across the state. So different amounts of grazing can affect things differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's complicated. People call in and ask, well, what, when should I graze it and how much, I mean, it kind of depends. It's a ranch by ranch plan and mm-hmm. figure out the best way to do that it's complicated <laughs> it's complicated but i think too it's pretty easy and i and i'm just speaking from my own experience when things start to get complicated we get stagnant we stop because we don't want to we don't want to do we're, we don't want to make a mistake and mm-hmm. i think that could honestly be the worst thing you could do is not do anything yeah absolutely so in regards to that, then let's talk about this invasive grasses summit that's coming up. Uh, as we were talking about, it's going to be on September 6th. Uh, you and I have talked today about some of the stuff that's going to be on there. Again, we're, there's going to be panel discussion that's you're, we didn't do today that's going to be a part of that. So uh, who's some of the speakers that you have coming in for this summit? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a couple of different groups across the state. Um, I talked about some of the stuff that's been going on in Sheridan County uh, with Medusa and Ventnata. When that started, a group was formed. It's called the Northeast Wyoming Invasive Grasses Working Group. So some of the main leaders from that group are going to be talking about kind of what worked as far as the early detection of new species and a rapid response to those. Uh, we've also got, I talked a little bit, there's a few people coming from Sublet County, the Weed Pest and NRCS. We have some people coming over to talk about uh, cheatgrass control on high elevation land. So that cheatgrass is a little bit different at high elevations, more on south facing slopes. So we've also got a group from Johnson County, uh, the Johnson County Natural Resource Habitat Restoration Team. There, um, in the past couple of years, we've been working on a project to help with prioritizing Um, annual grass treatments following fire. So we kind of have a different perspective of using remote sensing to try to help with making priorities on annual grasses. Uh, There's a group out of Montana coming from NRCS uh, in uh, Stillwater and Carbon County Mm -hmm. in Montana. They're going to talk about their management strategies and that'll do a little bit more with managing annual grasses on the Crow Agency. So that kind of throws a different wrench into things. So mm-hmm. different perspective there as well. We have a weed and pest coordinator from uh, the Upper North Platte in Carbon County that's going to talk about, um, I mean, it's a lot drier in the southwest part of the state. So management there is a little bit different as well. And you also have that more of a checkerboard of land ownership that makes managing annual grasses more complicated. And then we've got uh, representatives just from like statewide perspective, um, Slade Franklin, the state weed and pest coordinator and Ian Tater is uh, with Team Fish. They're both going to come and talk about kind of what their statewide perspective is on annual grass control. So we've got a kind of yeah. some different proponents. All of these people have actually had pretty good success in controlling annual grasses, but they've also gone through a lot of failures. And we just want to give an opportunity for them to share what has worked or what hasn't worked when it comes to funding or landowner engagement 
lots of different directions. So, I mean, the whole goal of this was just to give information for landowners to make decision making mm-hmm. instead of kind of starting at ground zero and trying to figure things out on your own. Let's help figure out what has worked for other groups in different parts of the state. And some of this, I mean, we have a representative from Montana, so kind of moving into other areas as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really good discussion. Just whoever has questions, ask them. And hopefully there's enough experts in the room that we can help uh, the best that we can. Yeah. Well, and, and like I said before, you know, our discussion today has really centered around some of the work that's been done in the state of Wyoming and and Montana and South Dakota. But at the same time, there's going to be things that could be replicated or used in other parts of the country as well. Because when we talk about invasive grasses, some elements, some, some states that might be a little bit different, but the concept of some of the control and some of the successes or failures could be replicated through many states across the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting collaboration funding, Cheatgrass at high elevation is kind of a different struggle. So um, even like remote sensing, just figuring out yeah. where grasses are, and that can be helpful anywhere in the U.S. as long as we figure out a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. So you bet. So this uh, invasive grasses summit, folks, it's going to be Tuesday, September sixth. It's from noon until five thirty, and it's on the campus of Sheridan College in Sheridan, Wyoming. And uh, for those of you that are maybe aren't able to drive in, Sheridan's a beautiful city in the northern t- part of Wyoming. Uh, you can fly in there if you wanted to, and, and spend some other time touring some ranches and things like that if you if you wanted to. Uh, but uh, at the same time, if you can't drive in and, and join them in person you can also catch them on zoom and they will be starting a zoom session at about 12 o'clock for that as well i will put a link on my facebook page as well if you don't have my uh, facebook page it's justin.yocowboy and i will grab this uh this uh, this brochure and put it on my facebook page or instagram justin.yocowboy is how you can do that or also in the link on the podcast description i will put that as well so you can find out more information or you can uh, called uh, JC about this as well if you have any questions either before or after she would be happy I'm sure to answer any questions we have about this so again JC did we leave anything out we cover everything I think that's covers most <laughs> of it um, I'd just say if you're interested in any sort of management on annual grasses feel free to call in through zoom or we'd love to have you in person I think it'll just be really beneficial if you have had any interest in learning about annual grasses or managing them. This is a great opportunity. You bet. Well, JC, again, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thank you for having me. All right. And again, my guest today has been JC Arndt. She's the Invasive Grasses Extension Educator for the University of Wyoming and heading up uh, one of those, heading up this Invasive Grasses Summit that we talked about here towards the tail end of our discussion today. Just a couple things before we head out. As I said before, I will put a link. If you'll go to the podcast website, search workingranchradioshow.com, or you can go to workingranchmag.com. Either way, it'll get you in there. If you look in the podcast description of this show, episode 84, I will put a link to a couple things. Not only will you see a way to get a hold of JC if you have any questions on this, but also the brochure that talks about this summit. In addition, I will put the link to the Zoom site, to to that Zoom invitation that you can click on, and that will allow you to join that Zoom conference. Again, that will be on Tuesday, September 6th. Now, I know today, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, that we did kind of focus a 
lot about uh, my home state, my area, and I don't uh, always try to do that too much because uh, as we we try to focus uh, shows here that are for folks all across the country, I think the principles here about invasive grasses and invasive weeds, there's some elements that you would be able to pull out of this if you want to take a part of this summit that will be very beneficial. And some of our discussion today with JC was good because we all have, no matter what part of the country you're in, you probably have some undesired uh, plants be growing there, whether it's grasses or whether it's weeds, either or. But there's some elements there that uh, do need to be uh, taken care of and do need to be addressed. And that's one of the things that uh, we have to do as responsible landowners. So again, that uh, kind of to wrap up our discussion here today with those thoughts. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be talking weather as meteorologist Don Day joins us. We have a lot to talk about here today. One of those being an update on La Nina and what he suspects or thinks possibly we could be seeing uh, for the coming fall and winter and into 2023. We'll be talking about that when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we're joined now by meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. And uh, boy, it's hard to believe. It just seems like yesterday we were talking about projecting into August for weather. But now we're looking <laughs> at September here. And uh, one of the phenomena is we might squeak through the month of August without any big hurricanes out of the south. Yeah, you know, we've, we've got a few days left in the month, but it's been remarkably quiet, not only in the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, but the Pacific Ocean has had a, a very quiet season again. Now, this is kind of going against a lot of the long-range forecasts that we're calling for a pretty big hurricane season. There's still a lot of season left. I mean, mm-hmm. we can still have a lot of activity in September and October, but certainly this delay in the in the season has got a lot of people scratching their heads. Although I did see an interesting uh, write up from a meteorologist who really studies the tropics hard. And you know, one thing we we have seen at least in the Atlantic Ocean is that this summer the air over the Atlantic has been really dry. And that has really kept the hurricane activity down. But as I mentioned, we've got a ways to go, mm-hmm. so we're not there yet. Yeah, but that doesn't mean necessarily that there has not been a shortage of moisture in the south because luckily they have started to see some moisture down in Texas and the northern plains or southern plains, excuse me, uh, that has been much needed. Oh, yeah, I tell you, you know, it's it's. Uh, for folks in Texas, you so you go from one extreme to another, right? It's 27 days in a row of 100 plus degree days in Dallas, drought conditions, and all of a sudden, you know, 10, 12, 15 inches of rain in some areas. And, you know, that subtropical moisture has been something we've been talking about all summer. It's been in the desert southwest. It's been into parts of the Rockies at times. And we've had a pattern that's really concentrated that subtropical air over the Gulf Coast and across portions of Texas. And there's going to be more rain coming. Not only is it bringing needed rain, 
granted too much at a time in some situations, mm -hmm. but it's cooling things off. Yeah. So the, yeah. the summer heat in, in the Southern Plains has really pulled back. We've seen beneficial rains in the Mississippi Delta area uh, that needed it. So it's, you know, as usually the case with everything weather, Justin, there's always good with the bad. Yeah. Well, let's let's get an update on La Nina. And that's something we do on a regular basis here uh, when there's an update that comes out. And there was uh, last week or so. So let's get an update on what that's looking like. Yeah. Uh, so the the folks who uh, run the computer modeling trying to predict what the sea surface temperature pattern will look like in the, pro in the Pacific Ocean uh, came out late last week. They update it once a month. Uh, with the latest prediction. And right now the prediction is for La Nina to continue through September, October, November, and probably December. So we've got another three months or so where it's likely going to be in what we call La Nina status, which means those colder than average sea surface temperatures near the, the equator. And uh, that is going to continue a lot of these La Nina conditions that we've had over the last two and a half years. However, it continues to show that by the first of the year, especially by January or February, we'll go into neutral status. So sea surface temperatures will start to not be as cool. They'll start to warm up a little bit near the tropics. And as long as we continue to see that trend in the modeling, we do, this gives us hope that by early 2023, we can put this La Nina to bed for good mm -hmm. and transition to a warmer Pacific, which is good news for everybody. Yeah. Well, it just seems like this has really drug on because I know a year ago at this time, we were saying, will we be out of La Nina right. by spring of 2022? So it has really drug on. So as it's kind of looking as though there is an end in sight in this and we're heading into the fall time of the year, early winter, what do you see that from a from a, a norm or what, what what would that be giving us for weather across the country for parts of the intermountain west and the central plains the, the the northern plain states and a lot of the rockies and into the midwest what that means is a more typical late winter spring pattern now we are looking at the potential for the the middle part of the country to have a really cold winter and i think that could go into a cold spring as well if this la nina can completely can fade away so this means that it'll be a more wet spring a colder spring and it may end up being a pretty harsh winter uh in the central part of the united states into the great lakes getting all the way down to the gulf coast at times you know one thing that i think we've got to wait another year for is going to be California. Mm -hmm. I think California is really not going to get into a really wet pattern again until we can get ourselves into a, an El Nino, which I do see coming mm -hmm. uh, either late 2023 or early 2024. So this is going to be a situation where conditions are going to start to get better in terms of the drought, but it's going to be a not happening all at once. It'll be a process that will happen over six or seven months. You bet. All right. Well, Don, thanks for the update here. Appreciate you joining us with a look at our long-term weather. Thanks for having me. Meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. By the way, uh, one of the things we've done in the past, and I'll visit with him about doing this again this year, and that is looking at some point coming on the show for, for a full show where we're going to talk about the long-term outlook that he is seeing for fall, winter, and spring, summer, you know, kind of a long-term six to 12-month forecast uh, for, for, for folks. That's very useful just to give you an idea. Definitely no guarantees, as we know, with weather, but it does give 
give us a pretty good indication. And uh, uh, Don has been extremely dead on, I guess, if you want to put it that way, uh, for some of the weather calls that he's made here on our program. And so I will let you know when that's going on. By the way, his website, if you want to listen and tune in each morning, Monday through Friday morning to his daily video podcast, you can do that by going to his website at dayweather.com. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to put a wrap on this week's episode. And I'm going to tell you about what we're going to talk about on the next episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Stay with us. We'll be back after this. Living in the country means working in the country, and that calls for a tough tractor. Well, Bobcat has 15 models in its compact tractor lineup from 21 to 58 horsepower. With the help of your local Bobcat dealer, you'll find a perfect match for your property and to-do list. Get a look at all the different models at Bobcat.com, and while you're there, use the Build and Quote tool to design your ideal machine. Get yourself one tough tractor from one tough animal. Bobcat. Visit Bobcat.com. Well, before we shut the barn doors on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show, I want to ask you a question. When was the last time, or maybe you've never looked at the website for Working Ranch Magazine? Well, check it out, workingranchmag.com. That's the address to go to. And it's a whole new look, a whole new redesign there. Also, if you scroll down just a little bit, you will see some of the recent programs that we've had here on our show. I invite you to go back and listen to some of those. Last week, we toured the Calgary Stampede's OH Ranch, and the week before our show was on the six P's to a healthy ranching business, check out the Working Ranch Magazine's new redesigned website at workingranchmag.com. Well, coming up on next week's show, I want to invite you to join us. We're going to be talking carbon credits as recently there was a white paper released and a webinar hosted by the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Several of those folks will be joining us next week as we talk about carbon credits. A quick thank you to our sponsors today, Gelvy and Balancer. The smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Zoetis, it's the little things that could derail progress with parasite control. The American Akaushi Association and Biozyme, it's weaning time. So for protection and recovery, think VitaCharge by Biozyme. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. To get a hold of me, send me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com or justinmills.wildcowboy on social media as you can find me there as well. Be sure to join us same time, same place next week or on your podcast provider. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.